Hello and welcome to Powerful Possibilities, a guide to ADHD from diagnosis and beyond. I'm your host Catherine and I'm a certified ADHD coach with my own experience of a diagnosis of ADHD and autism in my 40s. My career is dedicated to helping people like you navigate the misunderstood areas of ADHD. So whether you're recently diagnosed, you think you might be ADHD, or you're looking to better understand your journey so far, this is your new go-to platform for your insights and transformative strategies. Grab your coffee, settle in, and let's unlock the potential that's just waiting for you. You're in the right place. What's up everybody? It's episode six of Powerful Possibilities with ADHD from newly diagnosed and beyond, ADHD coach Catherine. Today we are starting to talk about ADHD and food. You'll know by now I like to have fairly short episodes of about 30 minutes and when I started to look at this I realised that it's not something that we can even skate over the top of in 30 minutes. So today we're going to start by looking at some of the common areas where ADHD and food might show up in our behaviour. We will have a quick look at the neurotransmitters that affect our behaviour and how they are connected with ADHD and our food intake. We will include some practical tips at the end, as usual, so that you can make sure that this newfound knowledge is put to good use and you are not sitting in shame any longer, which is one of the main things we do here help you to let go of that shame. Before we go any further, I want to say thank you. There have been so many messages and lots of lovely feedback. I'm really grateful. Every single message comes through to me and I read them all. I want to say thank you for putting the show in the top 25% of podcasts within the first months. I would be thrilled if we got to the top 10%. It's just me and my iPad and laptop. I'm really grateful that so many of you are enjoying this. And to everyone who's got in touch and said how much they've enjoyed it, thank you. It means so much to me to know that this is useful for you and you are allowing me into your ear earpods, earbuds, earpods. It's amazing. Thank you. So why talk about ADHD and food? right? Lots of people have this stereotypical idea of people with ADHD being too wired and too hopped up to think about food. And that does happen for some people, but the facts are quite different. And when I was looking at the research, I was really struck by some of the data. So I will put a little screenshot up in one corner. I will link in the show notes so you can go and read it yourself. But I was genuinely shocked, and there isn't much that shocks me these days about the impact of undiagnosed ADHD. We'll start by looking at some of the statistics. We will look at how ADHD and our neurology affects how we interact with food. We'll look at the neurochemistry that can affect our eating habits. And then we're going to look at some of the key ingredients that have been fairly conclusively shown to be helpful in our diets to support ADHD brains. And next week, we're going to look at things like organising your food, planning ahead, food in the ADHD home where you may have people who have quite conflicting 
sensory needs and all of that is very complicated so we're going to look at that next week and we'll start this week with a bit of data because I know you love the data. But first, I would just like to say that I'm not the only person with ADHD who has a complicated backstory when it comes to food. And I did have an eating disorder in my teens. Some would say that it's still there. It hasn't gone. It's just turned into something else. And I would say that I am more aware of it now than at any point in my life because it's something that you can't get away from everybody has to eat and the problem is that people judge other people on the basis of what they think they eat and how they choose to eat and how they present in the world so this is a really tricky topic it's a very sensitive one i'm not a psychiatrist a psychologist a counselor i'm definitely not a dietitian there are fantastic dietitians and nutritionists out there who are looking at the impact of adhd and autism on food I'm not one of them. I'm just passing on the bits that I think will be most useful for you. So if you are currently dealing with an eating disorder, please contact local charities in the UK. Beat are very good and they have regular meetings, phone lines. You can text them and they're great for people who live with people with eating disorders and those who are in the middle of it. And I would say that please take it seriously, but don't despair. So let's begin with some of those facts and the show notes contain all the references so you can go back and check. Around 20% of children with ADHD will have some kind of eating disorder at some point in their lives. A Duke University study found that around 30% of adults with binge eating disorder also had a history of ADHD. Now that means 70% of them didn't but I think when you start looking at the prevalence within the population compared to neurotypical population, that's when you start to see significant differences. For example, girls with ADHD are 2.7 times more likely to be diagnosed with anorexia than their neurotypical counterparts. And girls with ADHD are 5.6 times more likely to be diagnosed with bulimia than their neurotypical peers. And this is according to a study in the Journal of Developmental and Behavioural Pediatrics. Somebody made a comment and said, you know, if 26.7% of severely obese women are ADHD, that still leaves more than 70% who haven't. And I take their point. The problem is that that is five times more prevalent in the ADHD community than in the neurotypical community. So to kind of sum it up, and I will include lots of articles for you to go and check in the show notes, there's a real connection between eating disorders, whether that is binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, any of these really challenging eating disorders, and ADHD. Now that makes sense. I've been reading recently about a kind of combined or shared genetic underpinning for the most common psychiatric disorders, including depression, anxiety, general anxiety, specific phobias and disordered eating. And the researchers included ADHD and autism in there. I like to think of those as neurodevelopmental conditions, but we know that they travel with these psychiatric illnesses. And these eating disorders are psychiatric illnesses, But what if you're not 
there yet. What if you're somebody who eats more than they maybe want to, who maybe has issues around snacking and you think you might be ADHD? Are you included in this episode? Yes, you are. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to give some common sense information that you can use when you're thinking about how you go forward. But it's not down to your willpower. It's not because you're weak. It's not because it's a moral failing. And too many people equate how they eat with their moral character. And I want you to let go of that as quickly as you can. So it looks like the risk for obesity is around four times higher in the ADHD population than the neurotypicals. And that makes sense when you start to think about old friends' executive functions, what they are, what they do and what drives them, as well as the neurotransmitters involved in ADHD. So we know that executive functions are affected in ADHD and there are scientists, psychiatrists, psychologists who can measure your level of variance from the standard in terms of your executive functions. I don't do that. I ask people to make their own assessment of their executive function abilities. And I think for most people that's adequate outside of a diagnostic area. But think about what feeding yourself involves. You must choose the right food for your body's requirements in nutritional terms. There's also an emotional element to choosing what we eat and how we eat and when. But if you're thinking about food, you must plan ahead because, you know, those snack attacks when there's nothing in the house uh, and it's never the right thing, that's another executive function issue. And then the other thing that might impact the other side of nutrition is how we're caring for ourselves, our lack of sleep. So I'm going to go through some of the common things that happen around eating and food that are more common in ADHD. They're not a diagnostic criteria. None of these mean that you are ADHD. It's just something that you might observe in your own behaviour. So the main executive function people think about is impulsivity. And impulsivity is making those choices in the moment, which may not be aligned with our long-term goals, our future health, or any of the things that would hold us back. It means that you're more likely to act on impulse when you're surrounded by high carb, high fat, high sugar, refined food, and they spend millions advertising it to you on purpose. So it's not you, it's the environment that we live in. And with impulsivity, we struggle more to halt our impulsive behaviours. It's harder for us to say no to that donut or muffin when we go to get our coffee in the morning because it's there and it looks good and we're a bit tired and on impulse we buy it and I don't know many people who would chuck a three or four pound like pound sterling donut in the bin because you know it, oh, I shouldn't have bought that I'm just going to chuck it I don't know many people who would do that bravo if you do it's not me the other thing that we often struggle with is we're less aware of our interoception. You know, interoception is that feeling of how am I feeling in my body? Am I feeling hungry? How hungry am I? Am I full? And I've spoken to quite a few people with ADHD who say I'm either not hungry, starving, like I haven't eaten for a week, and then there's nothing until I'm uncomfortably full. 
so it's difficult to stop eating halfway through a meal. People talk about, yeah, leave so much on your plate. That's more difficult for us because we're maybe not aware of those inner cues from our body. And of course, that means we're less likely to be aware of being tired, we're less likely to be aware of being thirsty, all the things that we can mistake for hunger. And yeah, throw in some impulsivity, some easily available refined food and off you go. And that brings us to poor sleep habits. Now, sleep and ADHD, that's a whole other episode in the future. But we know that anyone who sleeps poorly is more likely to eat more the next day. And if you are chronically unable to sleep, and lots of young people and adults with ADHD are, then it's going to show up in your choices the next day. And again, that's not your weak will. That is your brain releasing hormones telling you to search for high energy food because you are fatigued. But not many of us have the luxury of a disco nap in the middle of the week. So you have to eat something or coffee or, you know, and a snack is at hand. So there's another reason that we tend to overeat or snack impulsively and thinking again about our executive functions and procrastination which is often a product of our executive dysfunction you've heard of procrastilearning i hope which is one of my favorite things but procrastinating is another one and i saw that a couple of years ago so we are faced with a task we don't want to do and instead of starting the task task initiation being one of our executive challenges, we just have a snack. Now, a lot of people get into this habit without being aware of it. And when you do become aware of it, it can be a challenge to break. But we're doing it because we come from a background of lower dopamine, lower circulating dopamine. And we'll look at that in a minute. And so food raises dopamine. We anticipate enjoyment, nourishment, good things from food. And so if you're trying to deal with laundry or paperwork or something really that you are just not up for, you're maybe tired, having a quick bite of chocolate before you start the task can feel like a really sensible thing to do in that moment. And of course, that brings us back to the lower level of neurotransmitters. It's not that we don't make as much dopamine per se, but our dopamine transporters are really efficient. And so quite often the dopamine's removed before we're ready for it to, to go to the receptor. But we know that dopamine in low levels means we are constantly under aroused. So we feel bored and we're also low in GABA or GABA, which controls our inhibition. So if we are low in dopamine, so we're feeling under aroused, bored. And if we are low in inhibition, the one thing we're not going to find it easy to do is prevent ourselves from looking for that arousal, that stimulation uh, in the form of an easily available snack. And when I was younger, it used to be nicotine. That was that was my thing. I can now understand why it was so easy to fall into that and so difficult to quit. Both of these are connected to what Dr. Nora Volko calls reward deficiency, which means that people with ADHD experience a lower level of reward to the exact same stimulus as a neurotypical brain. I think the studies are from 2007, incredible scientists working with her team on addiction, reward and ADHD kind of came up as a side effect. So when you are 
experiencing reward deficiency, you will look for a reward more often. We'll come back to that in future. Reward deficiency is a whole thing. But right now we're going to come back to food. And tied in with food are the, the kind of thinking models, the thinking patterns that I see quite often in ADHD, such as perfectionism, this all or nothing. I must be perfect. You know, there's the idea that you must eat super clean. This uh, very rigorous attachment to rules can be part of it. But also when we fall short of those standards, we can throw our hands up in despair and just say, well, I'm never going to be good enough. And so perfectionism often stops you for trying for good enough. You know, it's the old 80-20. 80-20 is applicable to everything. But if you're 80% of the time managing to manage your snacks and plan your meals and meet your nutritional and emotional and spiritual needs, then you're less likely to worry about the 20%. Perfectionism keeps you stuck. And that also feeds our procrastinating because we want to be perfect. We know we're not going to be perfect because we are human and wonderfully human at that, wonderfully weird. But because we expect perfection, we know we can't reach it. We just put it off because it's another one of those micro failures. Again, that lack of self-compassion. Self-compassion is the ability to say, well, you know, I'm really tired, so I made an unwise choice or I didn't plan that, but it's okay. And move on. There, let's say there is a unique combination of factors in our psychology that impact our behaviour around food that are also magnified by our neurobiology and the way that our brains are built and the way that they are run with our neurotransmitters. So what are the neurotransmitters that we want to think about in ADHD and how are they connected to food? So the main one that everybody talks about is dopamine. Dopamine is essential for motivation, for pleasure, reward, the anticipation of good things. And it's something that people talk about. Somebody must have said something because I've heard three people say chasing dopamine in the last two days. Dopamine is not an illegal substance that you chase. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that does a job in your brain. It's connected with motivation and pleasure and reward. And as I said before, in ADHD, it's imbalanced. We have less of it because our dopamine transporter cells are more efficient and remove it before their job is done. One of the main things that can be a precursor to dopamine is tyrosine. Tyrosine is produced from protein. There's some evidence that our gut microbiome also affects our mood. This is where science starts to get a little bit less conclusive. So I think it's not something that I want to focus on too much. There's some evidence that a healthy gut microbiome can also affect your brain chemistry. What are good things to include in your diet, whether you have ADHD or not, but especially if you are somebody whose neurotransmitter levels are slightly less than you would like. So the first one, omega-3 fatty acids are found generally in fish, that's where we think of it, but there are some alternative sources, including some vegan ones. I don't know much about the quality of those. I don't take them. I use an omega-3 fish oil. There's fairly good evidence that they are helpful in ADHD. Don't go crazy having too much of it. Instead, Focus on including whole food sources whenever possible. Obviously, I mentioned tyrosine before. The main sources of it are, of course, in lean meat, 
some in eggs and also in legumes like lentils, chickpeas, quinoa. And the protein-rich foods help because they are higher in a dopamine precursor, which is tyrosine. So making sure that you get adequate protein from whole food sources as far as possible. And the other thing to include in your diet regularly are complex carbohydrates. There's a huge debate going on about ultra-processed foods and how bad they are for us. And I guess anything that needs a chemistry degree to understand the ingredients, it's refined. But ultimately, all foods are made of chemicals. And I don't want to stigmatise anybody on the basis of what they're able to afford to buy. And it's a fact that refined food is cheaper. So if you're in a position where you cannot access the kind of ultra low processed organic type foods that you would like, please don't feel ashamed and just focus on doing what you can for yourself. Complex carbohydrates are generally not that much more expensive. There's things like brown bread, brown rice, the whole grains, as well as fruits and vegetables. And fruit and vegetables, again, they're quite expensive at the moment, but the more of them you can have, generally the better your health is going to be. Recently, I've really struggled to get enough fruit and vegetables for lots of reasons. So that's one of the things I'm going to be focusing on over the next few months. And these help because they maintain a stable blood sugar level. Blood sugar level has an impact on your brain function. Although I would not say that there is a magical brain food that will somehow make your ADHD symptoms go away. I would say that there are elements that are available to most people that you can include that will support your brain function, your neurotransmitter levels and your general health. Let's look now at foods to approach cautiously if you have ADHD and none of these are going to be a surprise. Okay, this isn't to say that these foods are bad. So it's not about complete rejection of these things. It's about being aware of the impact, understanding how it affects your ADHD and making an informed choice. Like medication, it's your choice. You're in control. Obviously, number one that everybody's going to be thinking about is refined sugar. I don't mean sugar that you find in pears, apples, berries, bananas. Those are fine for most people, unless you're diabetic, which is a different podcast. Refined sugar has a significant impact on your ADHD for two reasons. The first, obviously, is the spike and crash impact on your energy from your blood sugar level rising rapidly and then falling as your body dumps insulin into the system. And one of the things that I talked about earlier in a blog post was that we eat food that's high in refined sugar. We experience a rise in dopamine because we associate this with a reward. From a very early age, sweet food is associated with a reward. The problem is that the physical impact of such a high amount of refined sugar acts as an alarm, if you like, in our body. And so we feel worse because there are physical side effects and your brain reacts and says, I don't feel good. And what do we do? We look for something to make ourselves feel better. We maybe head back for more sugar when it's the sugar in the first place that could have increased these feelings around feeling not okay. I want to say now that I think sometimes these studies miss the point. And the reason I'm saying that is because I was looking at a study where people who had a very high intake of sugary drinks were found to be more measurably ADHD in their behaviour. And I think actually it's 
not that the sugary drinks cause the rise in ADHD. It could also be that people with ADHD with their lower level of circulating dopamine were looking for that reward. So we have the sugary drink because of the physical response, the insulin, the lower blood sugar, the biological feeling that this is somehow not a good thing. We feel worse and so we go back for more sugary drink. And so it's almost like a negative feedback loop which is caused not by the sugary drink but by our lower level of dopamine. I would love to hear from a scientist, a biologist. If I'm completely wrong, do let me know. But when you're thinking about foods to avoid, it's very individual. Some people are totally fine and don't notice any difference with refined sugar. Some people feel much worse. And the main thing is that none of these things alone are going to make you not be ADHD brained. They are complementary and none of them should be taken to an extent where they impact your health. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute. But I did say we would end up with some practical strategies and that is one of the things that I love offering in the podcast. So when we think about ADHD and food intake, we are most likely going to be thinking about snacking. It's very rare to meet somebody who eats far too many bananas or apples and we tend to go for the easy option. So what's going on there and how can we improve that if it's our choice? The factors in ADHD that affect our snacking are things like impulsivity, our ability to plan and organise ahead, our sudden massive hunger compared to not being hungry, and also the procrastination link. Sometimes we don't plan our days very well and we just don't have time to eat properly, so we grab snacks willy-nilly throughout the day. There's a theory that this provides us with little dopamine boosts throughout the day, especially if we're using high sugar, high fat food, which does stimulate those pleasure receptors in your brain. But I generally think it's also as much of a regulation tool and a sensory soothing tool. We use snacks to feel good because we're doing something with our hands and our mouth and we are soothing ourselves. But snacking can be absolutely fine if we do it with awareness and mindfulness and intention. Yes, I am mentioning mindfulness again. And although mindfulness is something that you should be cautious around if you have PTSD or other significant mental health problems, it's certainly something that is very useful to bring into your toolkit when you're thinking about your snacking habits. Snacking also helps us avoid more demanding tasks that we don't want to do. So how can we make snacking something that we're comfortable to do throughout the day in a mindful, intentional way? First of all, we want to have the big rocks in place. And that might mean looking at your regular meal times. If you have a really chaotic routine, it might be you don't have time to plan and cook from scratch and things like that every day. But making sure you have three significant meals, breakfast, lunch and dinner, is going to make snacking much more manageable and less attractive and certainly in the high fat, high sugar terms. And it does that because it maintains our blood sugar level, which makes our brain happy, which regulates our neurotransmitters, our body is nourished through these regular meals. And you might want to think, is there a way that I can access meal planning or 
meal organising services. When I was studying a lot and I knew I didn't have time to cook from scratch in the evening, I used all plants when I was studying a lot and they send out healthy, balanced, whole food, frozen meals that you can use for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And especially for dinner when I was working late, I found them invaluable because I could cook them really quickly and I still was able to feel like I was looking after myself by providing something nourishing. But the other thing you can have on hand is a toolkit of the snacks that you like and that are useful for ADHD. So things that include a lot of protein like Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, hummus is a good one, and nuts, things like that. Things with lots of fibre, so um, adding some vegetable sticks with your hummus, using whole grain crackers and combining protein and fibre together with some water is going to give you a really nice satisfying snack that doesn't cause your blood sugar to go really high very quickly but does give you that nice crunch. So think about the textures that you like, think about the flavours that you like and then one of the fantastic things I've seen people do is create almost a tray that they have to hand so that they can quickly grab things instead of going into the cupboards and seeing what's in there. Of course one of the root causes of this is our procrastination and it's easier to go and grab a cracker than it is to do a task that we don't want. It's just a form of procrastination. One of the things I'm going to finish with today is looking a little bit about procrastination. What causes procrastination in ADHD? It could be we struggle with task initiation which means it just getting started. We might feel overwhelmed at the idea of the job we have to do. We might be facing a task that is not even slightly rewarding. And of course, we are the best sometimes at deciding how long a task is going to take. And what that means is instead of being able to say, it takes me 10 minutes to put the laundry away, we feel like it's going to take forever. And so we put it off. So procrastination has lots of root causes. And the classic strategies that you can put in place are things like using a timer. Now I don't mean use a timer in the way that some people do. One thing that has been helpful for me is a time timer and I maybe set it for 10 minutes and see how much I can achieve in that time doing things like laundry or cleaning the bathroom. That doesn't mean that I'm racing against the clock. It means I want an objective measurement of how long a task that I do not look forward to is going to take so that I can then put it into proportion. I can put it back into the context of it'll take me 10 minutes to do this and then I've got another 30 minutes to do something I enjoy. You might also want to use things like tying a task you don't want to do with something you do want to do or a value. I think I mentioned last week that one of my values is family. Things like cleaning the bathroom and putting laundry away, I don't think of them on their own. I think this creates a nice environment for me and my family and because I tie it to a value it's slightly easier to do. Not easy but slightly easier. You could even combine preparing a nutritious snack with fibre and protein and something tasty as a form of productive procrastination, as a productive break. So you're taking a break but you're choosing to do something that's really good for you. You're still going to have a snack and it's part of your day. You might want to have specific times for a snack. So you may want to have breakfast, lunch and dinner, have a snack in between each. It can be really tiny, but it maintains your blood sugar throughout the day. For most healthy people, 
and this isn't of course going to apply to people with medical conditions please don't take this as medical advice for most healthy adults and young people three appropriate meals and three small snacks is going to keep your blood sugar and your brain nice and happy and nourished and working really well but when you do sit down to eat try not to be distracted I've seen devices where you can put your phone into a box and set a timer so you can't take your phone out of the box for 10-15 minutes an hour. You may not need to go that far, but choosing to put your phone away, choosing to not watch TV and focus on what you're eating is going to change how you experience that food and that break as well. So that's our first look at ADHD and food. We've looked at neurotransmitters involved in ADHD, how food can affect them. We've also looked at some practical strategies for snacking that also are connected with our need for procrastination or why we might be choosing to snack instead of getting on with something. We will come back to those in future episodes. You must experiment with what works for you. There's no one correct way to do these things and there's no one correct answer. But if you are the parent or carer or partner of somebody and you are concerned about their eating behaviour and they are not ready to talk to you, then you can get information from charities online like BEAT. There are other groups like ADHD UK, ADHD Foundation in the UK and they can point you in the right direction. If you are concerned about your own eating behaviour, please contact a medical provider. Don't delay and know that this isn't your fault. This isn't something you've chosen. And a lot of the time, people who have had binge eating disorder find that the medication for ADHD improves that. And in some places, it's prescribed for binge eating disorder. So there is a connection there. And you can change how you behave around food. But it's your choice. And I want to make sure you know that there's no judgment from me about any of these things. We're all human and we all go through different stages in our life and we all have different ways to deal with things. But if you want to make changes, hope that the information I've shared with you today is useful and helps you to drop some of the guilt and the embarrassment because we live in a culture where we are definitely judged on how we look, how we eat and how we nourish ourselves. And we know that ADHD has a significant impact on that. Next week, we're going to look at ADHD and food from a different perspective. We're going to think about food preparation and planning in the context of executive functions. We're going to look at families and ADHD and eating. And we are going to finish with a look about supplements, hydration and mindful eating. I hope this has been useful. I know it's a slightly heavier episode than usual. I know it's a slightly more serious episode than usual, but I do think that ADHD and food is the one thing we all have to do every day. And so the impact of ADHD on it, of course, is going to be significant. If you have any questions, please send them in. There's a form on my website on the podcast page, or you can contact me at ADHD underscore coach underscore Catherine on most social media channels. Let me know if you are listening and please leave a review and If you could leave a review, it really makes a big difference and I would be so happy if you could share it with somebody else that might find this useful. Till next time, thank you again.
Thank you for joining us today on Powerful Possibilities Navigating ADHD from New Diagnosis and Beyond. We're all about equipping you with the tools and insights that you need to thrive. If you found value in this episode, please subscribe and share it with someone else you know who might benefit or who you want to understand you better. Remember, your journey with ADHD is an ongoing journey of growth, but you're not alone anymore. Until next time, this is Catherine, reminding you that with the right guidance, the possibilities really are powerful and endless. Take care.